0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd love for you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 11. We're going to talk a little bit about this morning, not a little bit, a lot, about the Messiah. Now, the setting where we're picking up in verse 12 of chapter 11 is after the triumphal entry. I preached on that on Palm Sunday, that particular passage. And so Jesus has entered in Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, fulfilling prophecy in Zechariah. And after he had done that, after the people had proclaimed his name and praised him as the Messiah really is what they were calling him, but they just didn't understand what Messiah meant at that point in time. He looks into the temple. He goes into the temple, and he walks around and looks around, formulates a plan, and then he goes out to Bethany. And that's kind of where we're picking up is the day after that, the day after he formulated his plan. See, this is the last time Jesus will be in Jerusalem in his earthly life. He's been there two times before, at least. As a child, he was probably there many times. But this is the last time that he'll be there on his earthly life. And the whole week of this final time will be pointing toward the redemption. But now he has some corrections to make for his Jewish brethren, as well as for us, as he uh, goes into the temple. Let's read this. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. I know your outline may say something different, but I shortened it because it's just going to be too long otherwise. Follow along as I read, starting with verse 12. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs, He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this perfect parable in motion that we see here, this perfect analogy of what you're trying to communicate to the lost sheep of Israel, to the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests to the Jews that were there, and all the way through the centuries to us, communicating to us a proper mindset regarding worship. Speak to our hearts this morning, Father, as we explore this passage. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you notice, there's a parable here and an actual event or actual teaching moment. And they, they got a fancy name for that. Basically, he creates a sandwich. Mark writes it this way. Now, the other gospels that recorded this, they wrote it. They wrote about the fig tree and the withering all in one passage, one paragraph. And then they talked about Jesus clearing the temple. Mark does this specifically so we can see, and his Greek readers, his Gentile readers can see, there's a connection between the withered tree and the nation of Israel especially when it comes to the temple worship. So Jesus is using that, fig, that fruitless fig tree to expose the barren religion of the Jews. Now we need to see how this impacts our worship, impacts our faith. What does Jesus teach us today about worship? Well, Jesus reveals that poor worship with a simple miracle and bold action, he just reveals it plain as day. Jesus exposes the empty worship of Israel. If you see here in verses 12 through 21, he's in Bethany, he leaves Bethany, and he's headed toward Jerusalem, and he gets hungry. Anybody ever get hungry, right? You get that little tinge in your stomach, you know. Jesus got hungry, by the way. He was human. He was fully human. So there's this hunger. You can't really predict when it's going to happen. I mean, sometimes you know it's about time, like it's about noon, I need to eat kind of thing. Well, Jesus uses this little tinge of hunger he has because he just came from Martha's house. You know, Martha fed him. If you know the story of Mary and Martha, you know Martha gave him food. So he's not starving, but he's got this tinge of hunger and he uses it to make a point. They've left the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha after raising Lazarus from the dead. They were staying there. And this place becomes a hub of security for Jesus in this last week of his life. It's a place of fellowship, it's a place of hospitality. And it's also a place of safety. So now him and his disciples are moving toward Jerusalem, and they're walking along the road. And he sees a fig tree, and he's got this tinge of hunger, and he says, I'm going to go see if there's any fig. Now, remember, it's April. That's when Passover is and Easter, so you can make the connection there. It's April. Now, in Palestine, and, and even in some days in places now, the fig trees will bear a little bit of fruit before they put out their leaves. Not much, not the full harvest, but a little bit. So that's why Jesus could even entertain the idea of going over. The tree was full of fig, full of leaves. He thought it might still have some of that early fruit on it. But really, Jesus knew there was no fruit there because he's Jesus. He knew that. But his disciples didn't. And his disciples needed to see and hear what he was about to do. He knew it was not the season for figs. Mark puts that in there for his readers, not for Jesus. Jesus knew it wasn't the season for figs. Figs don't come around till June or later. He knew it was not time for the figs, but he needed his disciples to see and hear what he was about to say. And he saw the fruitless fig tree, and he said, cursed are you. No one will ever need fruit from you ever again. And this began a parable in motion, I call it, or we some of the scholars called it and he's doing this to talk about the correction he's about to make in the way temple worship was being conducted that day in those days now don't feel sorry for the tree okay some people get all been about of shape that Jesus used a miracle for destructive purposes Jesus used a miracle for an instruction for the souls of men just like the passover lambs that were going to be slaughtered here in a couple of days in this time frame for the souls of men this tree carried a message The the lack of fruit on the tree, it parallels the lack of worship that's going on in the temple right now. Jesus judged the tree just like he's about to judge Israel. Now let me explain to you something about the temple. If you've you've looked at a picture, you know it's it's a big monstrosity. It's got several steps going up to it. But let me kind of give it simple form. You come in from the east gate of the city of Jerusalem. There's a gate in the wall, and it's sealed up right now. It's been sealed up since... The, the Muslims took over the city years ago, but there's an East gate called the golden gate and it comes in and then there's the temple gate, the East temple gate. And that way you can walk and it's actually not a gate at that point. It's just stairs up to Solomon's portico, basically a big giant porch that eventually was expanded all the way around. And so on that porch, you walk up there and then you walk through another little doorway in a sense, You're still not under a building. You're still out in the open, in a sense. And there is the Gentile courts of the temple. Gentile courts of the temple where the Gentiles, male and female, could come and worship Yahweh. Then, after that, there's another doorway. And that is the Jewish women's courts. After that's another doorway and courtyard, that's the Jewish men's court. Then, there's the altar where they sacrifice the Passover lambs, where they sacrifice all the fellowship offerings and stuff to the Lord. And then there's another entrance into the holy place. And then there's another entrance into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, that only the chief priest went once a year on Yom Kippur to redeem the sins of Israel. So that's the layout well, we're, we're coming into the temple area here and Jesus walks up those steps and into the Gentile courts. Now understand something. The Gentiles could stay out there and worship God because they could hear what was being said inside the other courts. They didn't have a PA system like we did, but it was designed for that. They could hear what was going on. They could hear the scriptures read. They could hear the singing and the, and the songs. And... Somewhere along, right after Jesus probably was born, the chief priest named Annas brought the bazaar of selling stuff from the Mount of Olives into the Gentile court and put it there. And that's how these sellers and buyers and money changers got there. They weren't originally there. They hadn't been there forever. The the high priest Annas did it. When Rome deposed Annas and kicked him out of the high priest position, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, kept it there. So that's how come it's still there. The problem with this is it prevented the Gentiles from worshiping. Imagine a bunch of cows and cattle and dubs and money changers in here while we're trying to listen to a sermon or sing a song. It'd be chaos, right? It'd be a circus, right? Well, this was hindering the Gentiles' worship. I want you to understand that this is how important it is to Jesus that we all worship His God, His Father. This place. This Gentile court was the only place in all of the known world where a Gentile, us, could worship Yahweh corporately, could worship Yahweh under the guidance of scriptures. You couldn't go into the synagogues as a Gentile. You might could have stood outside and listened out a window, but this was an ordained place by God Almighty for the Gentiles to come and worship, and they came, they came. And Jesus was completely upset with this whole setup. Matter of fact, he had drove them out before. In John chapter 2, I believe it is, he drove out them before. So this is the second time Jesus is driving them out. You'd think they'd get the clue, but they don't care. They don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, so they're not. So he threw out the buyers and the sellers. He he turned over the money changers' tables. They were changing money between Roman money and temple money so that you could give your offerings that you had to give to the temple each year. He blocked, he physically halted anybody from passing through that courtyard. That courtyard, had, there was other gates and entrances into that area. You could come through there and go out the east gate toward the city or toward Mount of Olives, and they, people were using it to transport stuff through there. They weren't respecting that place as a place of worship. And while he was policing all this stuff going on in the Gentile courts, he made his point about the fig tree and the Jews. He taught that God called for his temple to what? Be a place of prayer, a house of prayer for all the nations. You can just interpret that word nations as peoples. Anybody, anybody, anytime, anywhere could come there and worship Yahweh. That was what his temple was supposed to be. Now, why did he use the phrase prayer? Well, it's from Isaiah 56, and that's one reason why he did it. But Like I mentioned earlier, hunger, that tinge of hunger, sparks us to want to get something to eat. It's the same thing with worship. Worship starts with prayer. Worship really starts with prayer. Now, not the prayer that we think of necessarily, but a plea to God, a request for God to make himself real to us. It's a prayer. It's a prayer. Worship begins with that. And it's like a hunger pain. And it causes us to look for truth to search for peace, aid, comfort. And Jesus is reminding them that's not what this building is for, this selling and buying. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, a house of worship. God had made it clear in Isaiah 56 that this is what he wanted his house to be, a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples, and they were wrecking it. Jesus rebuked them with a strong accusation. You've turned it into a den of thieves, a cave of robbers, a a place for bandits to hang out. Now, why did he use such a strong accusation? Well, partly we understand that they probably were some extortion going on there. They were charging too much for the doves. When they did the exchange rate between Roman and temple money, they were probably not doing a very fair exchange rate. Um, The animals were probably costing a lot more than they would have cost, fair market value kind of thing. There was a lot of profiteering going on, which is the whole reason why Annas moved it into the temple court, so he could keep his eye on his profits. Out there on the Mount of Olives, east of the temple and east of Jerusalem, he couldn't control that, but he could control it inside the temple. So there's a lot of profiteering going on. But the bigger problem here, mostly Jesus is accusing them of being robbers and thieves. They're stealing worship from God Almighty. They're dampening the worship of the one true living God. This bizarre thing, this bizarre hindered God receiving glory. I hope you see that. And Jesus is extremely frustrated with it. Like I said, this is the second time he's corrected it. He's frustrated with their greedy attitude, their insincere concern for the souls of humanity. He's frustrated. The scribes and the chief priests proved his point about wrong worship when they said, we're going to try to find a way to kill this guy. You see that there? I mean, they just proved the point. They're not worried about worshiping God. They're not worried about the Gentiles coming to God. They're only worried about how he's affecting their bottom line. They hated Jesus, but they they loved their popularity a lot more. You notice there it says they didn't do anything right then because of the crowd. Because of the crowd. Popularity, boy, it's a a fickle bedfellow. And these men loved their popularity. They hated Jesus, but they loved their position too much to risk it right now, which is all in God's timing as we see later. It all works out to God's timing. they loved money, they loved prestige more than people, and God judged them for it. This crowd loved Jesus' intensity, though. They really liked Jesus taking action. Oh, yeah, kick them out, get them out. Hey, they were also hoping that this same Jesus would throw out Rome, too. <laughs> That's what they, they were hoping. So they were loving Jesus, as, for he was making change. He was, he was correcting things. They missed the lesson, too, because this same crowd, in just a couple of days will scream, crucify him, at the top of their lungs. Some of these same people will be chanting for Jesus' death in just two or three days. But right now, their, their concern, their popularity love, popular love for Jesus is holding the evil at bay for now. And then at the evening, they, they leave and go back to Bethany. Like I said, it's a place of security, a place where they can kind of get away from the city and the noise. Because imagine Jerusalem is a, a big bundle of people right now because there's probably 2 to 3 million, they say, that fell in on Jerusalem for Passover. So Jerusalem is like a city that's covered up for the, national, for the basketball championships or something like that. It's just overwhelmed with people. So Jesus goes out to Bethany. Then the next morning they're taking the same trek back. They could have taken another path maybe, but Jesus had a reason to take that path. They took the same path. The next morning, and Peter, we can always rely on Peter. Peter saw the fig tree that it was withered from the roots all the way to the top. Every leaf was dead, every limb was dry, the trunk was dead, the roots were gone. The roots were dead. He saw that, and he called Jesus' attention to it. Almost in, like, surprise that that happened. Surprised that this destructive miracle, the only one in the Gospels, by the way, by Jesus, had actually happened. I think they may have thought that Jesus was just frustrated with the tree like we kind of do your doggone tree and walked away. They may have thought he was just kind of like, spurning the tree, but not really cursing the tree. But he judged the tree, like he judged Israel in the temple courts that, that same day. Jesus, the judge, had pronounced a verdict. Had pronounced a verdict on that tree, but also on the Jewish temple. And you know what? The parable of the fig tree came true. In 70 A.D., a mere 40 years from this point in time, the Roman Empire broke into Jerusalem, ravaged the temple, desecrated it, and destroyed it completely. And it's never been rebuilt. The fig tree parable came true. Jesus had judged them, and nothing changed. Worship's important to God, It's how we give him what little glory we can give him is through worship. We gain from that worship too. You ever ever had a craving for a food and you you go to the restaurant or you go to the store to get it and and it's sold out? Or worse, it's closed? (laughs) We've done that several times since COVID. It's like, walk up in the door, it's like... Because people are understaffed, imagine the Gentiles. They have made trek. I mean, they've made a trek from somewhere beyond the borders of Israel and Palestine, more than likely, and they have made this trek to Jerusalem. And they walk up the portico steps, Solomon's portico, and they step up on that final step, and all they see is animals and doves and money changers. How disappointing that was. They came there to worship, not buy stuff. It's not a market. It's a temple. They came there to the only place in the known world where they could worship God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I Am. See, they didn't have the Holy Spirit to let them worship wherever they were. I mean, we do that ourselves. We can go out here under a tree and do what we're doing right here. This is more comfortable, I know, but we could go do that. And trust me, our African brothers and sisters, they do that a lot. They didn't have the Holy Spirit to lead them in that direction yet. But even even the Jews were suffering from this this, uh, circus. So the Jews had to walk up those same steps, and they had to walk through all of that nonsense to get to their courts to pray and worship God. What kind of noise was in their heads after they got inside their courts and probably could hear the noise in the Gentile court behind them? It was a disappointment, and it was a desecration of God's temple. See, worship is very important to the health of our souls. Jesus said in John 4, 23 through 24, he's speaking to the Samaritan woman, by the way, when he says this, who is, for most parts, a Gentile. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him He's looking for them. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's hard to worship in spirit and truth when a bazaar is going on around you, when people are selling and buying and shouting and cows are bellowing and sheep are bleeding. And worship is not only just to be done corporately or publicly together, it's also to be done privately. And the writer of Hebrews gives us a, a command of how we should do that and that we should do that regularly. And let us consider, he says, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As believers in Christ, this is the best place to be, to get encouragement, to get motivated to do the things we, we're, we need to do for Christ, to reach out to other people. That's why we're here, to worship God and to motivating and, and basically gouge each other on. Because it's hard. The Christian life is not easy. Me and several pastors this week traded some, some text, and I said, pastoring is hard, but God is good. And they said, pastoring is hard and pastoring is good. and Sometimes the same and sometimes more, one or the other. So it's, a, it's, it's something we have to do to help one another walk this walk. So, this morning, some questions we need to ask ourselves. So, how do we know our worship is fruitful? What questions and what actions can we take to ensure a profitable worship? Well, I've got some answers. First of all, are we just leaves? Are we just leaves on a fig tree? We look pretty, we're green. You know what? If we are just entertainment, If we're just here because it's a ritual, a box we check each week, we're failing. We're failing. We are fruitless. Our worship must always seek the Father, praise the Son, and use the Holy Spirit to glorify God. Even privately, those things should take place in our soul. The second question is, how are we doing worship better? What can enhance and improve our worship? i got a couple ideas about that. Jeremy and I have been praying and working through some new things. You've probably seen uh, and noticed since the first of January, uh, we've added more Bible to our worship service. We've added uh, different kind of songs and different kind of prayers. Prayer, which I said was the beginning of worship, is, is a main ingredient of our worship, a prayerful attitude, a prayerful soul that comes seeking God, seeking to lift up our needs as well as to honor him with our words. Mine and Jeremy's goal, and hopefully all of y'all's goal, is to leave here loving Jesus more every day, every time we come. Leave here loving Jesus more. That's my goal. So we make sure the songs point to Jesus. We make sure that they point to Jesus, the gospel or God's attributes. We make sure the lyrics speak of Jesus and gospel and God. And we make sure, try to make sure they're singable. Sometimes there's some songs out there that are great lyrics, but the tune isn't so good. Also, another way that we can improve our worship is that we come prepared to worship. I encourage every one of you to come here each Sunday prepared in your hearts to worship. Public worship on Sunday comes from private worship the other six days. The other six days, you can spend some time quietly singing a song or Praying a prayer, reading some scripture, all of that's great stuff to do. Set aside time every day to worship God. And then it'll bring you here ready to worship him together. I believe it's important that we do that. The Jews, as they went to the temple for Passover, there was a lot of preparation. If you you started Psalms 1, I think it's 120, There's a song, Songs of Ascent, they call it, and it's the songs that the Jews would sing and recite on the way to the temple, wherever they were coming from. So if it was from a long way off, they went through them several times. This is how their children learned scripture. This is how their children learned how to worship God. Prepare your heart to worship. And thirdly, we need to ask, are we at the risk of being cursed? Are we at the risk of withering being closed are we worshiping God the way God desires or are we about to be shut down now some of you have expressed concerns to me and and I I hear you over the seniority of our congregation and sometimes the numbers and I hear you and we're I'm praying looking for God to answer obviously We'd love to have more people, and that's something God will bless us with in time. But I I need you to understand some things here. And this is what I can tell you for a fact. I know for a fact. God's still using this church. He's still using it. There's still things going on. It may not be evident right here, but there are still things going on. He's bringing us people at at times, but he's also bringing us opportunities. But here's here's three actions we can do to help ourselves... Avoid being cursed, being closed. First of all, remember that God calls churches to build his kingdom, not their church. God calls all of us as believers in Christ to build the kingdom of God. This might be a manifestation of that, but the most important thing is that we are building the kingdom of God, and nothing needs to hinder us from that. That's the first thing we got to remember. It's always about the kingdom. Jesus started his whole ministry with that statement. The second thing we can do to make sure we're worshiping God the way he desires is we need to honor God in every aspect of our existence. Everything in life needs to be governed and and filtered through God. Worship is the beginning of that. That's why it's at the first of the week. Hopefully setting the tone in your head for the rest of the week for the stuff you're going to encounter because there's a lot of stuff out there to encounter in your jobs, in your schools, wherever you might find yourself. And so we need to make sure every aspect of our life so when Jesus says worship God in spirit and in truth he's talking not just in here on Sunday morning he's talking every minute that's what he was trying to get across to the Samaritan woman was that you don't have to go to a special place to find God he can find you and you can worship him in the Holy Spirit and the truth that you know and that's why we must prepare for worship God also says that we must gather to motivate and encourage and push each other in obedience and deeds, and that still has to happen. So loving each other and doing good deeds toward each other and our neighbors is still vital. Whether they come to our church building or not, doing that is important. And lastly, we must pray. I hope you've heard that from me in the four years I've been here, that you've got to pray. Pray. Prayer is the spark of worship, but it's the fuel of the Holy Spirit as well to to move, to have vessels through which to move and minister. I mean, we've had prayer meetings since March on Tuesday afternoons, and it's been good. We've had some great times of prayer. We've had some great times of sharing in prayer, but we can always pray more. As As I used to say, you can't pray enough. You never get prayed up. You never read your Bible enough, and you never pray enough. So if you're concerned about this church, this church's future, pray for it every day. Because by prayer is the only way things are going to change, the only only way God's going to use us. Ask God specifically to make us a tool for his kingdom in this community and around the world. And he already has. He's used us. But there's so much more that we could possibly do. Make sure you're not asking God for higher attendance. That would be great. But that's not the point. Or anything else that would be different from souls being saved and discipled right here. That's what we want to do. We want to make sure people leave this building, whenever they leave this building, more in love with Jesus. That's our goal. And I can promise you this. If our worship doesn't move us to confession, repentance, and action, we will be cursed. We will wither. Our worship needs to move us in that direction. God, help us to humble ourselves. Seek your face and turn from our evil that you may hear us and heal us. Amen. You know, Jesus was fed up with hollow worship in the temple. The fruitless religion of the Jews, he was fed up with it. He cleared the temple, ran them off. I'm sure they were back after the crucifixion, maybe even after the resurrection. I'm sure they were back, but he ran them off. And he taught that pure worship for his Father, our God, is what we need to be striving for. So as I wrap this up, you know, we the American Church, we've crafted many ways to worship, at least we think we have. Um, there's churches this morning using fog machines and light shows and all kinds of stuff to try to generate worship. Make people feel good, make them feel entertained. There's many other pleasures that infiltrate have infiltrated our worship services. Even in small churches like this, they're trying to have traditional and contemporary services. That won't ever happen here as long as I'm here. We need to be traditional and contemporary at the same time because those two types of services, they just create division. They separate your congregation, and we don't need to separate them. We're all to be together as a church focused on the kingdom of God. When the parts we use have more human design, than God's design or God's components of scripture and prayer, we are missing the point. Worship God must include focus on God, on his glory, his mighty acts, and especially his son, Jesus Christ. So I apologize, and I ask for your forgiveness, that I have not always led us this way. This week I've been reflecting on this, and there's things that we could have done differently. There always is. I want our worship to elevate God's kingdom in any way we can and that worship to to flow out of the doors of this building into the community. And grace grants us more times to try. That's the beautiful thing about grace. In Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to keep trying. So let's, let's take some time in our pastoral prayer right now to pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. If you want to come to the front and pray, come on. We'll take a few minutes of silent prayer. And let's pray that God will start in this community using us. Let's have a time of prayer.